Is there a birthday that you especially remember, one that stands out from all the birthdays in the past, maybe where something special happened or where something disastrous happened or whatever? Or maybe, like me, your, your past birthdays just kind of tend to, to merge into one. You know, I find it difficult to separate out what happened in the 37 birthdays up until now. I can hear you scoffing. Stop it. Well, I, I don't know how old Ezekiel was when he, when he died, but one thing I'm sure of is that he remembered his 30th birthday. It started badly. The day started, he was in Babylon, and he didn't want to be there. Ezekiel was a Jew. He'd been brought up in Jerusalem. He'd been brought up by a father who was one of the priests that looked after the temple and, and the holy city. And the responsibility, the privilege of being a priest was something passed from father to son. And so, from Ezekiel's um, youngest days, he was earmarked as someone who one day was going to be a, a priest in the Lord's temple. It was a position of great responsibility, of great privilege. And his young years were all shaped towards fulfilling that great destiny. The law was that you could become a priest, and you actually took part in being the priest when you reached the age of 30. But five years before Ezekiel got there, an army from Babylon came and captured Jerusalem. The Babylonians didn't destroy Jerusalem, at least not that time, but they, they took the, the creme de la creme, they took the leaders of Jerusalem with them back into exile. You know, the folks that had the most followers on Instagram or the most tweets or whatever, the people who were really influential, the people who were important in the Jewish society were, were taken off to Babylon. That way, the Babylonians thought they would be able to make Jerusalem more subservient and, and so on. And one of those taken off into exile in Bab Babylon was Ezekiel. And so on the day when he should have been becoming a priest in the temple of the Lord, there he was, five years' experience of being a refugee. Now, in this time of pandemic that we've been through, we've seen something of, of the dislocation that people suffer people who once had a job and the job was no longer there, people who maybe were pilots and then the airline's not flying, so they have to go off and find somebody else, people who are artists and musicians who have nowhere to perform, no theatres where there's a stage, and so on and so on. We've seen people dislocated from homes, losing their job, they can't afford the rent, they have to go back and stay with parents, or people who, who feel that they should go and back to parents to look after elderly relatives, or people who have stayed in caravans or the garden shed so that they're not going into the house and risk taking the COVID into the household when they're day-to-day -day going to their work in the care home or wherever. And these dislocations are, of course, sore. They're, they're, they're painful. They're costly. But much more was what Ezekiel was going through. Suppose a foreign power came and conquered us, took us to a land where we'd never been before, a culture we were completely unfamiliar with, a, a language we knew nothing of, a place where, yes, there was great wealth, but we were getting none of it. We were, as it were, living in corrugated tin sheds, while up the hill there was a, a mansion and people coming and going with all kinds of great wealth. That's what was happening for Ezekiel. And more than that, more than just the 
dislocation, more than just the hopelessness of being a refugee for all these years, the, the very foundation stones of the identity of the people of Israel were being removed. They were God's chosen people, and that was based on their being a, a redeemed people, a people taken out of slavery in the foreign land of Egypt, people who were promised and then taken into the promised land, people who were looking after the temple of the Lord, the house of God on earth, and these foundation stones were removed. They were back in a foreign land, back in slavery. They were not in the promised land, and they didn't have the temple. And, and so, are we the chosen people of God or not? The whole, the whole identity, the things that marked them out, the land promised to Abraham and his descendants, the throne city of David, the temple of the invincible God, all removed. And so, everything that they believed, everything they thought they understood was suddenly called into question. They could no longer despise other people or other religions as inferior. And the days when being a priest meant something were long gone. The days when you could only get on if you were a faithful Jew had disappeared. In fact, these things were a disadvantage now. So, happy birthday, Ezekiel. That's his experience. That's where he started from that morning as he got up. Nobody's going to bring him cake, no cards to open, no presents. Nobody's going to come along and sing happy birthday to you. In fact, if there was any singing going on around Ezekiel, it might well have been in the words of Psalm 137, verse 1, by the waters of Babylon, we lay down and wept. We wept when we remembered thee, Zion. And then, then he received a vision from God. That's what made this day different from every other day in the last five years. It was an amazing and unusual and extraordinary vision. Now, in the Claremont Calling that we put out on Friday, there is a description of what Ezekiel saw, which is recorded in verses 4 to 28. It's from the Bible Project, and they have a lot of good and useful introductions to Bible books, Bible characters, Bible themes. And from Claremont Calling and the website that's there for the Bible Project, you'll be able to see other things that they have. And there, in Clement Calling, you, we see their very good summary of Ezekiel, or the first half of the book of Ezekiel. Now, we need not get bogged down with all the detail of the vision in verses 4 to 28. We should notice the repetition of words like appearance and, and likeness. That is, Ezekiel wasn't so in concern to give us everything in great factual detail, he was painting with broad strokes. And he, he concludes by saying, verse 28 of chapter 1, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Not just, here's God, I can tell you what he looks like. One removed from that, it was the glory of the Lord. But no, not just the glory of the Lord, it was the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And even further back, it was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. He's not telling us what God looks like. He, he knows fine well he's trying to describe the indescribable, explain the inexplicable. And we cannot share in the vision that he saw. We can only read the description, very well aware of the limitation of words that don't do justice to the amazing power of the experience itself. 
And the combination of the things in the vision, the storm in verse 4, the creatures, verses 5 to 14, the wheels, verses 15 to 24, and the throne and the final verses, they, they suggest something of the glorious presence and power of God. And significantly, the wheels were saying to Ezekiel, the Lord is not confined to the temple in Jerusalem. He's not back there. The Lord is here in Babylon. He's here in all His glory and fullness. The Lord has not abandoned His people. They are not out of reach. His glory and His power do not fade over distance. They're not like some radio signal that can only go so far. Even Babylon can become a place of hope and of transformation. So the vision in chapter 1 shouldn't have us asking about what all the little details mean. What it should make us think about is whether our God is too small. Because that's what had happened to Ezekiel. Surrounded by the day-to-day -day life of being in exile, of being a refugee, God seemed distant. God seemed far away. God seemed unable. God seemed powerless. And maybe for us too, our experience of the Lord has become too faint and, and too weak. I think it's a trouble with much of Christianity today that we've too feeble a perception of the glory of the Lord. The Almighty has become the Almighty, to borrow a phrase from George MacLeod. Now, of course, we cannot conjure up particular experiences like this. It's God who gives. It's God who is active here. We're told in verse 3, the heavens were opened, suggesting just there like it was when Jesus was baptized. The heavens then were opened and the Lord spoke. Here is God revealing and God gives His Word. God gives His Spirit. The hand of the Lord comes upon Ezekiel, and it's the Lord who sends them. But though we cannot dictate to God the when and how, of he, how he should make himself known, we should be very aware that we need to realize and experience his glory, that we need to know his greatness. And that's especially so in the hard times that God's people go through in Ezekiel's day and for the church in the Western world today. A response to where we find ourselves is not just about whether we can come up with the right ideas or the right programs. These things matter. But more important is the presence of a great God, a glorious God, a God of majesty and of worthiness, a God like that who is with us and among us. And even if we are not to be privileged to the kind of overwhelming vision that Ezekiel experienced, we should be a people who long, who pray for deeper experience of the greatness of God in our lives. Now, looking for that taste of the greatness, the goodness of God, is not to advocate an experience that's removed from real life and real living. The details given in, in verses 1 to 3 of the first chapter are very, very specific, very detailed. And the word there in verse 3 is very emphatic. There the hand of the Lord was on him, on Ezekiel. 
The word there underlines the contrast between what Ezekiel is about to see and all else that was around him as he turned 30. Miles from Zion, in exile, away from the temple, under the yoke of foreign rule, there in all of that, there in all of that, the Lord appeared to Ezekiel. And where the Lord seemed to be absent and where his people seemed to be totally rejected was transformed now by this divine invasion. Now, I suppose we're used to thinking of God being God who is everywhere. We can pray at the bus stop. We can pray in the bus because God is everywhere. We can pray when we're in the bath. We can pray when we're driving the car, um, although don't do it with your eyes closed. God is everywhere. But that was only a faint idea um, amongst the Jewish people at this time. Particularly, they thought of him in the temple, in Jerusalem, in the holy city. And the exile experience removed that and, and made them feel that God had abandoned them. And Ezekiel had been wrestling with that. It was all over. He'd been defeated. It's a bit like when, when Murray is, loses at Wimbledon. It, it, it's over. Okay, there might be a tournament going on, but he's no part in it. It's finished. Or when Scotland got the Euros. It's, I said, it's over for and Ezekiel had that kind of feeling, it's all over, it's finished, we've been beaten. God's been whipped. That's why we're in exile here. And then, suddenly, on his 30th birthday, God is there. God is with them. No border guards can turn him away or keep him out. Nowhere is barred to the throne chariot of this God, this great God, there verse 3, the hand of the Lord was on Ezekiel. Now, visions like this, religious high points and experiences of God, are not just so that we can simply lap them up and enjoy them, have our religious batteries charged. Ezekiel is grasped by the Spirit of God, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Twice in verses 3 and 4 of that chapter, the Lord says, I am sending you you see, with the vision came the call to serve. He is to be God's spokesman. He is to be God's agent. God has work for him to do. And to be God's spokesman, to be God's agent in the world, he and we too have to take the Word of God seriously. And so there is this vision of him being given a scroll on both sides of it were written words from God, and he's told to eat the scroll. Take the Word of God. May the Word of God become part of you. And just as much as our bodies need food for physical living, so too our soul needs a word from the Lord, our spirit needs a word from the Lord that we might live, that we might be fed, that we might be nurtured. And so it's not enough just to have a cursory familiarity with the story of Scripture. It's vital to life itself. Is that the kind of seriousness with which you take the Word of God? and the Scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments? Does it matter as much as getting our breakfast, having lunch, having dinner? Or is the soul not as important as the spiritual life, not as important as our physical lives? And then there is words given to Ezekiel when he's told that being faithful to God's call doesn't mean that all, everything's going to go easily. 
Ezekiel, you're not going to be appreciated. People are, verse 7 of chapter 3, hardened and obstinate. I remember um, adverts many years ago on, on television about, you know, join the Navy and see the world. They didn't mention the tough training. They didn't mention the possibility of war. But there it was. You want to see the world? Join the Navy. See the world. Well, Ezekiel doesn't get an enticement like that. Look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2. Become a prophet and be hated. Sit on scorpions. Get covered in briars. Nor actually do we get <clears throat> any different treatment from Jesus when he challenges us to follow. Yes, there are the promises that he will be with us. But basic to his call is the command that each day we have to pick up our cross daily. Now, I want to underline four things um, in conclusion. <clears throat> One, the key issue in our lives and witness as Christians is a genuine living experience of God. It's about knowing God, not knowing about God, but knowing Him. This is what gives the church credibility. This is what gives ministry and service credibility that we are in fellowship with the living God. That's what qualifies us to speak for him, to, to, to represent him, to be his agents in the world. I'm a different view from many of my colleagues. I've always had strong views that on church notice boards, you know, the minister's name shouldn't be followed by the degrees, the letter after his or her name. You know, because ultimately what, what qualifies someone for ministry is not that they've got a theology degree, not that they've studied um, church law. I, even I passed a church law exam once. That, that's not what qualifies us. What qualifies us is that we're called by God. What qualifies us is that we've met with a living God and heard his call and responded to that. And the flip side of that is it doesn't matter then if you haven't been to Bible college. It doesn't matter if you haven't got a degree. It doesn't matter if you haven't passed any exams in church law. If you know God, then you are his people, his agents, his representatives, his ambassadors in the world. The key thing is that we know God, taste him, experience him. Secondly, <clears throat> notice that it's both being led by the Spirit of God and following the Word of God that are part and parcel of being God's people. Ezekiel has the Spirit come upon him and into him, verse 2. And then he's given in this picture of the scroll the, the Word of God to say this is to be your guidance. And we need both. And as receiving both the Spirit and the Word, the response then is to obey. And that's what set Ezekiel apart. He was going to a rebellious and a disobedient people. But to do that, specific, deliberate acts of obedience are needed. That's the fruit of taking the Word of God seriously. In our experience-saturated society, where rules are so often shoved aside, and what you feel is what matters, the church has been too readily, too easily influenced by that. It's not just about our feelings. The Word of God, ministered through the Spirit of God, and the obedience to the Spirit and the obedience to the Word are crucial. 
Thirdly, the church today, amazingly enough, finds itself in a similar position to Ezekiel. Oh yeah, of course, we're not in Babylon, we're not in a foreign country. Ezekiel lived two and a half thousand years ago, but there are great similarities. There's been recent debate, I got it in a magazine I got just last week, about whether Christians in the UK today are being persecuted. Well, I think that's a bit strong, actually, but I see where the point's coming from. Respect has gone, privilege has been substantially removed. Christianity is often mocked and caricatured. Street preachers have been arrested. Public figures have been called into question about their particular views and faith. Tim Farron was hounded out of his position as leader of the Liberal Party, and there's been similar knives drawn for Kate Forbes of the SMP. And just as Ezekiel could look back on a time when his faith seemed to have status and significance in the world. So too, it's not that long since the church in the West had a similar place. And that's gone. There is no point in expecting it to be handed back to us. It's not going to be. And I'm not even sure that it would be a good thing to have it back, actually. For just as Ezekiel had to rethink his faith, rethink what obedience would mean, Rethink what it would mean to serve God when the tide was flowing the other way. So too, in our day and age, does a once cozy, once national, and once nominal church have enormous lessons to learn. How do we, in the words of verse 4 of Psalm 137, sing the Lord's song in a strange land? That's the call and the challenge for us. Not to rest and rely on what used to be, what might have been. Not expecting the tide to turn so that suddenly everyone's going to be much more respectful and everything else. The challenges, the, the questions are not going to go away. And so the church has to ask itself, how do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? But fourthly, lastly, God is here. The task is challenging. Obedience is not easy. Going against the culture of the time is not child's play. Taking the Word of God seriously, following the Spirit of Jesus, the same Spirit who led Jesus to Calvary, is not a picnic. But God is here. He's not tied to one place. He's not tied to one time. He's not tied to particular or special buildings. He's not tied to particular religious ritual. This is what Ezekiel was being shown. You see, he thought it was, it was the other way. He thought God was tied to one place, one time to special buildings and rituals. And, and he didn't have them, so he was lost. But suddenly here God comes and says, it's not about any of those things. The living God lives all over the world and lives in his fullness all over the world. And the God who is here is a glorious God. He simply needs more Ezekiel types to work with and to work through in the world. A people who know God, who are led by his spirit, a people devoted to his words, a people who will obey sacrificially, a people who will learn and, and, and take the challenge. What does it mean to sing the Lord's song in a state, strange land? How do we be faithful to God when we're in the minority, when we're in exile? And that can be you. We don't, as I said, need BDs or courses and this and that. Simply to trust God 
to fear in him. A great God who has a great purpose and a great cause and who is worth following through the scorpions and the briars and whatever else that means for us today. And following that God, following such a God, by the way, as an invitation to have an eternity of happy birthdays. Let us pray. Help us know, help us understand, gracious God, that just as you were Ezekiel's sufficiency in his exile in Babylon, just as you were able to reach out and touch his life, so you are with us wherever we are. And so you call us to live with you, to live for you, Lord, help us. Help us to sing your song in our strange land. Help us to say, Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus Christ is coming again. Jesus Christ is worth it. And give us the wisdom and the grace that we need to live out the way of Jesus. for your glory. Amen.